You're listening to Calvary La Habra's podcast. For more information, visit us at calvarylh.com. Thanks for listening. For those of you that don't know me, my name is Mike Clunder. I've been here a couple of years now. Um, and I get asked once in a while whenever the opportunity arises to share from the word, and it's always a, a privilege. So I'm always blessed to do that. And um, uh, I love teaching the Word of God. I'm more used to a classroom setting, which is why I like the smaller, you know, I wish I had a whiteboard behind me, all that good stuff. But um, the Word is so rich. There's such a depth to the Word that we can take the same passage and go through it over and over and over again, and there's always something new to mine out of it. I don't know if you've spent that kind of time in the Word. I was thinking back a few years ago, I, there was a season of life we were going through where the Lord was just putting a lot on our heart and doing a lot in our lives, and, and he brought me to a passage out of the book of Exodus. And I remember I spent the year, a year meditating on a single verse, <laughs> that the Lord just kept bringing something new out of that verse for our situation that we were in and what we were going through, and it was the, the word we needed in that season. And then I, I kept reading, so I'd started in Genesis and was just reading through, and, and I got up to the book of Leviticus, and that's where most people fall out. <laughs> they they kind of end there, but for some reason, the book of Leviticus just came so alive. It, it became so rich. It's, it's now one of my favorite books of the Bible. Um, I'm, I'm one of those unique people that loves the law. <laughs> we're going to talk a little bit about the law tonight. We're going to talk a little bit about what we're supposed to be. What are we supposed to do? How, how many of us are saved here tonight? We, we've been saved by Christ. We put our faith and our trust in him. We know we're going to heaven. We got that secure. So what now? That, that's the question I want to pose to you now. You have all of this life to live. What's it about? And, and this, this thought actually started a couple of years ago. <laughs> See, a couple of years ago, my mother passed away. And it was my responsibility in that whole process and all of these sort of things to call the headstone company and have them make her headstone. And, and we put the typical information down there. We put the name, the date of birth, date of death, loving mother, you know, all those sorts of things, the flowers. And, and we got a, a nice, beautiful one that matched her parents and all these sort of things. But I was struck, and, and, and I spent a little bit of time just thinking about that, that little dash in between. You guys have all heard this before, that, that dash in between the birth date and the date of death. And, and what is summed up in that dash? What is that dash all about? What, what do we do with that dash? Now, now I'm suspecting that, that many of you are in places that I've been in my life, and I get to once in a while, where I start wondering, why am I doing all of this? Why am I sacrificing? Why am I doing it this way or that way? What's the whole point of this? What, what, what am I aiming towards? What, what, why do we get up and go to work every morning? Why, why do we keep at it? What's the point? And, and we would all come back with the patent Christian answers for the glory of God, right? Because God has called me to do that. And, and, and that's good and fine, but what, what gets you up every day? How can you stay motivated in your Christian faith? And what is it that you should be aiming at? And why should you be aiming at that? So I wanted to spend a little time in the scriptures tonight looking at some of that motivation 
for our life? Why do we engage in the Christian life? And then how do we go about doing that to receive all that the Lord has in store for us? You were saved not just so that you could wait to go to heaven. Otherwise, the Lord should have just taken you right away. You get saved and just right into heaven. That would have been a whole lot better, right? We're all looking for the escape from the world nowadays. <laughs> we can't wait for the return of Christ, not because we're excited to see Christ on the throne, exalted in glory and be with, because we want out of here. <laughs> Am I right? We can be honest tonight. I told you we're going to get a little personal. <laughs> we want out of this place because this place is getting a little hairy. It, it, it gets scary sometimes going out in some streets. I used to work in downtown L.A., and there's some streets I had to drive down where, man, I don't stop. I don't care if there's a stop sign or not. I'm not stopping on that street. I was down there when the riots were all happening and all that kind of stuff. And just going to work, there were a few days where I'm like, uh, I'm going to take a different route. There, there's the threats of, you know, every day there's no safe place to go. Nobody, this, this world is, is falling apart at the seams, especially here in America. We're seeing that firsthand. And so as Christians, how can we go about our daily lives in such a way that we honor the Lord and we're pursuing that which the Lord has designed for us? Because he's designed us in the here and now to thrive and to experience his presence to experience a taste of that eternal life that we're going to have in the future. And so I wanted to talk to you about that, but there's, there's two responses that we tend to have. We're going to jump into the scripture in just a second here. But there's two responses we tend to have when we talk about how we go about this sort of a thing. The first response that we tend to do is we, we tend to put the rules in. We look back and say, well, what does it mean to be a Christian? What do I do? How do I conduct myself? And we, we go back and we start setting parameters and rules in place. Well, I get up at 5 a.m. every day. I read for an hour, and then I pray for a half hour. And then I, uh, you know, I have my five-colored outlining system in my Bible. And then I go to work, and I, I make sure I talk to three people during the day. And, and once I do that, you know, and we've got our steps and our checkboxes, and I go to church, and I do this. And, and we've got all the rules that we put in place. I don't drink. I don't cuss. I don't smoke. I don't hang out with people that do, you know, all that kind of stuff. <laughs> and we think that that makes us the Christian, and that's what God wants from us, is to, to live this upright life. And yes, that's true. But what happens when your rule or your parameter butts up with somebody else's parameter that might be a little bit different? Because I bet you if we went around the room tonight and I asked you about some of these things that some of us would take very personal, we would have some disagreement in here. Should a Christian ever drink? If so, how much? Where do we draw that line? What about speech? What's a curse word? What, I've had that argument here. What's a curse word and what isn't a curse word? <laughs> what about movies? What movies do we see? Is it okay to see this movie? It's PG-13, or should we stick only with PG? <laughs> we can go down the list, and, and we would have all these sorts of arguments just on those types of things, but even within the church. I've had this conversation recently at a, a church nearby when the elder board appointed an assistant pastor that had been recently divorced. And the church went up in arms, and there was two sides to this. One side says, we can't have a pastor that's been divorced because 1 Timothy 3 says that uh, he has to be the husband of one wife. And there are others that say, well, there's grace, and we need to exhibit grace because of the circumstance. And there was a dispute in the church. 
So what happens when our rule butts up with somebody else's rule? <laughs> How do we conduct ourselves then? What's the goal then? So, so that's one approach that we tend to do, and we see that in our world today, where people are laying the rules. What do we do? Well, we make a hard, fast rule, and we stick to it, and we make everybody else stick to it. We start making laws and make everybody stick to this. And now you have imposed rules that you have to follow. And we can set rules for ourselves that are not even scriptural, such as, well, I've got to read the Bible one hour a day. That's my rule. If I don't read the Bible that day, then I've not been a faithful Christian. <laughs> Nowhere in scripture does it say that. But then if we flip to the other side of the coin, how we respond to this, some people will respond to this in a, in a completely different way. And, and they say, well, it's more about what brings about the best result. It's a utilitarian kind of answer. What brings about the best happiness and the best circumstance? In our church, what's going what's to really be the best for the people? In our life, what, what is the passion of my heart? And that's what I should pursue. Uh, what, what is it that makes me happy and brings joy? That's what God wants me to experience, right? And we see a lot of that in our culture. <laughs> in the church, thankfully, it's somewhat guided by scriptural parameters. But also in the church, we can get pretty liberal with that as well, if we're going to be honest with ourselves. <laughs> How many of us justify our sin because we think, well, the Lord really wants me to be happy in these respects, and he wants me to enjoy these things, and it, it's really not that bad or whatnot. And we see the world has gone to, to that whole extreme as well, that whatever feels right to you, whatever you think is right, whatever seems good, then express that and do that because your happiness is the ultimate goal. Well, the scripture teach us something a little bit different, and, and it's an aspect of our Christian life that we all talk about, we've all heard, we've all experienced to an extent, but we tend to ignore. And so I wanted to bring it face first for us tonight and challenge ourselves tonight to be mindful, to pursue these things, and I want to give a couple practical tips of how we do this as well so that we can walk out of here tonight and experience the life that God has for us in hopefully new ways for each of us tonight. So before we jump into scripture, let's pray and uh, see what we've got for this. Lord, we thank you for your word, that your word gives us instruction. It reveals your desire for us, your plan for us, your heart for us. And Lord, the things you've asked from us are not arbitrary. You have a goal in mind. You have a, a plan that you're bringing to fruition, and we're a part of that plan. And Lord, you're preparing us to fulfill the role that you've called us to. May we take that to heart tonight. May it begin to form and to shape the way we approach our world, the way we approach our day, the way we approach one another. And may it be something that helps drive us to see the meaning in the things that we're doing and the, and the purpose for the daily life that we have here and now, that we can truly experience the joys of relationship with you in our daily life. And so, Lord, anoint your word tonight. Speak through your Holy Spirit to us tonight. Open our eyes and our ears to hear what you have to say to each of us. Lord, you know where each of us are. You know the things we struggle with. You know our walk with you and where it needs to be strengthened, where it needs to be corrected. We just pray that you would do that tonight. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I want to ask you if you would turn to Mark chapter 10. 
This is an account I know we're all familiar with. I want to look at it from a slightly different angle tonight, though. In Mark chapter 10, it's interesting just to get the context. Jesus is teaching. He's teaching a, a mixed crowd of, of Pharisees and leaders and Jews in this place. And he covers three hot topics. In the first part of chapter 10, he talks about divorce. In the middle of chapter 10, verses 17 onward, he talks about money. And then at the end of chapter 10, verses 35 onward, he talks really about power or position. These are three things that trip many of us up. Sex, power, and money, and position, and those things. We all want those. We think that that's the good stuff. Jesus deals with that in this one chapter alone. (laughs) So he's just talked about divorce, about having your horizontal relationships right. How to deal with that and what the teaching is on that. And then he comes to verse 17. And a, a, a young man enters the story here. And then we're going to look just at verses 17 through 22 tonight and see what the Lord would teach us about his purpose for our life and what he designed for us from this passage. It says in verse 17, it says, as he was setting out on his journey, speaking of Jesus, he's about to leave and, and take off. He says, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, let, let's examine the situation here first. This, this man, we know that this man is a wealthy man. He's got some authority. He's got some power. He's probably dressed in the finest robes. He's got a respectability in society. He's, he's got almost everything that you could want. He, he has want for nothing. He, he's able to make direct access to Jesus. I imagine people probably got out of his way to give him space because he's that kind of a guy. He's the guy you don't get in his way. <laughs> But he's also the guy that because of the society that he lives in, because of his social status, his position and his power and his wealth, he doesn't run for anybody. (laughs) He has people that runs for him. But here we see him abandoning those things. There's something about this guy that he needs something, and he runs to Jesus. This is something below his station. So there's something unique happening here. We've got an elite level society member running to a lowly rabbi. Not only is he running to this rabbi, which he would never do in public, but it says that he ran up and he knelt before him. Imagine the rich and the powerful coming up and kneeling before a preacher, humbling themselves setting their position aside, setting their reputation aside, setting that cutthroat business sense that they must have had to get to this position, setting their, their, their position and, and their respectability in society on the edge here, saying, I, I, I'm coming to you and I'm kneeling before you. I'm desperate for something. There's something going on with this man. Lest we think he's got it all together. We look at people in our society today and we look at the car they drive and the money they have and the house they're in and the Beverly Hills zip code and all that kind of stuff. We think, gosh, they've got it together. They got the life. They got no problems. They don't have the money issues. The $6 a gallon gas isn't hurting them like it hurts the rest of us or whatever the issue may be. They've got it covered because they've got resources and they've got ability to do what they want to do. This man's an example. That's not what life is about. 
There may be comforts, but there's a longing, there's an inner need that we all have that cannot be met by these things. The power, the position, the money did not satisfy this man. There was something he needed. And he needed it so badly, he was willing to set all of that stuff aside and run to Jesus and fall on his knees before him. A radical situation. Something completely out of the norm, completely countercultural that this man was doing. And he simply says, he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? There's a lot wrapped up in that question. First of all, what must I do? You just tell me. Tell me the process. Give me the five-step program. Give me the checklist that I can go down and ensure that I get what I want to get. This is what we do in our Christian lives oftentimes, right? <laughs> if we're going to be honest tonight, so let's get a little personal here. We have our checklist. Lord, what must I do in order to have the Christian life that I'm supposed to have? What must I do to come into church on Sunday morning, on Wednesday night, on the studies or whatever it is, and have that respectability at church as being a spiritual person? Then I can walk around with that, that air of, uh, of maturity, that people would look at me and think, gosh, this guy's got it all together. What must I do? What's the process I need to follow? Just, just give me the task and I'll complete it. But the problem is, our faith is not a task. We tend to put rules and steps and all of these things in place. We put that in, in, in place of our faith. The, the ministry itself, and I have been guilty of this over the years. This is something that the Lord has ministered to me for 15 years now, and I'm still learning it. We put the ministry in the place of our relationship with the Lord. Our Christianity becomes what we do for God, not who we are in light of God. Let me say that again. Our Christianity becomes what we do for God rather than what we are in light of God. That's the key to tonight's message. We, we begin to put activity in the place of character. We begin to put action and movement and ministry and function in the place of heart issues. Now, ministry is fantastic. I'm not going to tell anybody to step down or stop ministry. We all should be engaged in serving the Lord in some ways, but your entire life is ministry. I want to blow past the notions that ministry happens when you walk in these doors. I argue that ministry happens when you walk out these doors. <laughs> when you wake up tomorrow morning and you go to work, you're in ministry. When you're sitting around the table with your family, you're in ministry. When you're going out to the mall on the weekends or the movies or, or, or out to dinner with whoever, or when you're doing whatever you're doing, you're in ministry. You are a full-time minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So everything that you do is ministry. So when this guy says, Lord, what must I do? He was saying, just give me the checklist. Give me the couple things. If I read an hour a day and pray a half hour, if I, if I go and serve for 12 hours a week, if I, if I usher, if I park, if I go to children's ministry, if I preach, if I bring five souls a month, whatever, what do I got to do? Jesus isn't so much interested in all of that. Because there's a precursor, there's a prerequisite 
to effective ministry. And what he asks there is, he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now here it gets into a little bit of the motivation. The eternal life that he's talking about is a little different than your and my concept of eternal life. See, he is a Jewish man. His concept of eternal life and what eternity would be is the coming of the Messiah who would set up the Davidic throne and bring in the kingdom of God on earth, reuniting heaven and earth for all eternity. It's not some far-off heavenly picture of this otherworldly existence where little angels with wings fly around, which is not a good picture of angels, by the way. And it's not our modern picture of heaven. (laughs) He had a real, tangible expectation that the Messiah would come, would restore the Davidic throne, would establish Israel, and would reestablish the people of God and their territory there as promised in the Old Testament. He was standing on the prophetic expectation of a restored Israel and the restored kingdom, where God would now come and rule and reign among his people, and the Jews would restore their practice in the temples, and, and it would all be restored the way God designed it in the Old Testament, right? That's his expectation. So what must I do to inherit eternal life. How do I get a part of that gig, is what he's asking. (laughs) How can I ensure myself a space in your restored kingdom? We simply ask, Lord, how can I escape this and go to heaven? It's the same type of question. How can I ensure myself a seat at the table? How can I be a part of things? But one thing I think this, this guy had an advantage over us nowadays He had a tangible reality, an expectation of the future. For us, we talk about heaven as this far-off, distant, spiritual thing. It's not tangible to us oftentimes, right? It it seems unreal. How do we describe heaven? How do we talk about heaven? It's so otherworldly and so different, and and it's not tangible to us. We, we, We... we think it's going to be so, so much different and removed from this. We, we forget what heaven is really about. He- heaven is about God's throne being established, what this man was fully expecting. When you read the book of Revelation, and we'll look at that in just a minute here, when we read the book of Revelation, Jesus is sitting on the throne and there's nations before him, and guess what? You and I are busy. <laughs> We're active in ministry, even in heaven. I, I, growing up, I, I always heard that in heaven you're going to go and worship God forever. And I'll tell you what, as a teenager, I didn't really want to go to heaven. <laughs> yeah, e- even as a young college adult and these sort of things, that, that song came out, I could sing of your love forever. You guys heard that one? You, you guys ever sing that song where it felt like you were going to sing forever? <laughs> I've been at a few conferences and retreats where they just, they just played that out for, uh, it had to be a good 10 minutes. And I remember, you know, first couple of minutes, you're like, okay, this is good. I'm feeling, I'm feeling it. After five minutes, you're like, are we really going to sing of your love forever? Can't we wait till we get to heaven before we do that? Or, you know. Then we start making excuses, well, time is different in heaven. It's not going to feel like forever. And our picture of heaven is this dull, drab, you know, contained worship service. And that's reflected in the way we live our lives. Oftentimes, we become these dull, drab, contained Christians. I do this, I do that. I follow the steps, I follow the plan, and boom, I got a seat at the table. Isn't there more to the Christian life than that? 
And again, I have a suspicion, if you're like me, we've been at places where we look at it and say, there's got to be something else. I know there's something more. There's a yearning in my heart for more. So what is that? So this young man asks a really good question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? What are the steps for me to be a part of that kingdom? For me to be guaranteed a spot in that tangible reality of heaven? What do I have to do? Jesus, the wisest man that ever lived, gives the perfect answer. Jesus said to him, verse 18, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, now this seems like an odd answer. Jesus is really good at doing this. He gives the oddest answers that don't make sense at, at just initial glance, but when you think about it a little bit, it's the perfect answer. Why are you calling me good? God, only God is good. In other words, what he's saying there, do you realize what you just said to me, man? You just called me God. Step one. (laughs) You just identified something about me, Jesus says, that is different from everybody else. The Pharisees that were standing there that were just discussing divorce, Uh, The crowds of Jews around, I'm sure the Sadducees, the scribes, the who's who of Jerusalem was all there. And Jesus said, you just came up and identified something about me that you've not seen anywhere else. No one is good but God, and you're now attributing that to me. He says, that's a great attribution. Note that, I am God, he's saying. (laughs) He says, says, young man, you're off to a good start here. He wanted to clarify the young man's perspective there. You you want a part in God's kingdom, then realize who you're talking to. (laughs) And then he goes on in verse 19. He says, you know the commandments. You know the rules. You know the parameters. You know the steps. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Don't defraud. Honor your father and your mother. The Ten Commandments, right? Well, at least the last six of the Ten Commandments. (laughs) But Jesus says, hey, you know the rules. The rules have been clearly laid out. The Jews have wrestled over the rules for 1,500 years at this point. There have been books written on interpreting the rules. And you've played fast and loose with the rules and argued over what they meant. And your rules butted up against the other people's rules. And how you interpreted those rules get applied differently for everybody. That's why we're having discussions on divorce. That's why we're having discussions on these topics, what the Sabbath means, and so on and so forth. What does it mean to be a follower of God? You know the rules. They're simple. There's only, I just gave you six of them. Don't murder. Okay, I didn't kill anybody. Well, let's go back to Matthew 5. What did Jesus say earlier? He says, well, if you've hated a brother in your heart, you've committed murder. Anybody guilty? (laughs) Don't commit adultery. If you've lusted after somebody, you've committed adultery. It's not just the physical action, it's the intent of the heart. The action is just a manifestation of what's inside. And so Jesus is getting past this man's outer persona. You're rich, you're powerful, you've got it all going on. You're even doing the right things. You're obeying the rules. You're following the commandments. Some of us are sitting here tonight saying, I read the Bible every day. I pray fervently. I even share Christ with other people. But I'm still not satisfied. I still think there's more. 
And you're right. <laughs> so what he's telling this guy, he's saying, you know all the rules. You've got it all going on. You've now come to me. You've identified something about me. So let's keep going. He says, verse 20, this man now says back to Jesus, Teacher, all of these I have kept from my youth. In other words, I'm doing it, Lord. You want to see a model Christian? You want to see a model Jew? This is him. (laughs) I'm keeping the commandments, Lord. I'm showing up on Sabbath services. I'm fully decked out in the way that Leviticus describes it with the garb and the proper garments and the tassels hanging out. And I haven't cut the sides of my beard. And, and, and I'm, I, I'm doing all of these things. I'm honoring my parents. I'm, I, I'm helping the poor. I'm, I, I'm serving at the synagogue. I, I, I park and I usher. And then I go to children's ministry. And, and then I clean up after everybody leaves. I do it all. <laughs> That's who this guy is. I, I am the model Jewish man. And I've got the blessings that everybody in society thinks shows God's favor. I'm rich. (laughs) I've got position. I've got authority. I've got a place in society. I've got all of these things that make people think I've got it all. (laughs) And I'm doing it exactly right according to the book. Have you ever felt that way in your Christian life? (laughs) Again, let's be honest tonight. (laughs) Lord, I'm doing it. I gave it a try. <laughs> that pastor told me I need to read more. I need to study more. I need to pray. I need to, more, more do- I need to even keep a journal. <laughs> you know what? I'm even going to bake cookies and take them to the neighbors. <laughs> I'm going to put the fish sticker on my car. You know what? I'm going I'm to buy the Jesus sandal so when I walk down the beach, it leaves a message behind. Jesus saves. Everybody who walks behind me is going to see Jesus saves. I'm doing everything, Lord. <laughs> I'm doing it all, but why do I feel like I'm missing something? Again, if we can be honest tonight, (laughs) we have those times in our Christian walk where we we feel like we're doing it all, but we're still missing it, right? I've served in churches. I've been on staff at this church for a time. I've served in missions overseas. I, I... I serve at a seminary right now. I'm surrounded by, but there are times that I feel like, God, where are you? (laughs) What am I missing? I'm surrounded by you, by people who know you, who love you. I'm surrounded by all of this, but I'm still missing it. I'm giving my best. Every waking hour of my day, I'm giving to the service of you, God. I'm doing all that you've asked me to do. All I want is to know that taste of eternal life. Well, before we get to Jesus' response, the the issue at stake here is not one of activity. It's not one where this man wasn't doing enough for the Lord. It's not one where the man wasn't serving enough, reading enough, giving enough, whatever enough it is that you want to put into that blank. (laughs) Whatever we try to fill to gain favor, to, to demonstrate our faith... It's not that the man wasn't doing that. It's that the man was missing out on the purpose of all of that. All of that is perfectly good and fine, and hopefully we're engaged in those things in our own way. But there's a precursor. There's a prerequisite to all of those things that this man was missing. 
Let me give you the motivation for this. Turn back to Genesis chapter 1, and let's find the motivation. This will hopefully make it seem more imperative that we engage and are attentive to our souls and the character that God is forming in us rather than the action that we think God is doing through us. Because the action is going to follow the character that's being built. So in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, again a passage that I'm sure many of us are familiar with, God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Do you see what you were created for? Another way to translate that word dominion is reign. You were created to reign over this creation that God has created. God created mankind, God created man and woman to have dominion, to have authority, to facilitate this creation that he has placed here. And we're to direct and facilitate and have dominion over and reign over all of creation, every creeping thing, every aspect of this earth, of this universe that God has created in such a way that we can present this as glorious and honorable back to the Lord. Our lives are to be conducted in such a way that everything that we're doing is a presentation back to God of his glory and his majesty. Because you are created in the image of God. You are an image bearer of God in this creation. You are that representative of God, the one who bears the, uh, the, the will, the soul, the heart and mind of God to this creation and that can uh, facilitate and direct this creation in such a way to bring this creation to the final end that God desires it to have so that it brings the greatest amount of glory and honor to God and that his kingdom can be facilitated here in this earth. And we're a part of that. How many of you feel qualified and equipped and ready to reign? <laughs> if I were to ask you guys, how many of you guys feel ready to take over the presidency of the United States today? Some of you might. <laughs> Good. <laughs> it's a big job. <laughs> There's a lot to it. And I start thinking, what kind of person do I want to take over that presidency? What's one of our biggest complaints about politicians nowadays? Shady. They're corrupt. They don't have character. There's no virtue. We're a little bit less worried about what they do oftentimes. We may disagree with them and all that kind of stuff, and that's all there. But we want people of character in the house. We want people of character leading and ruling and reigning over us. Well, you have been given the mandate from God from the moment of creation that you would rule and reign over this creation that he's made. How equipped and prepared are you for that? How has your character been developed in such a way that you will rule and reign in a virtuous manner? One that brings honor and glory to God in the way you conduct yourself and the way you treat those things around you. It makes our character seem a little bit more important now. But we often don't have that end in mind. 
We have our personal salvation. I want to go to heaven. <laughs> and it's about me getting there and maybe dragging a few other people with me. Well, it's about you being equipped and prepared to rule and reign for all eternity. Because flip with me, with me now to the other end of the Bible, to Revelation chapter 22. <clears throat> Lest you think this is an Old Testament chapter of Genesis thing, Genesis 1 thing, some people might argue... I have the right verse? There we go. Revelation chapter 22. I've heard people argue that, well, we've, we've lost that creation mandate when we sinned. We sinned and gave up the right to reign. We've abandoned that mandate. Well, Revelation 22 verse 5 says, and light will be no more. This is in the, the kingdom of God in that eternal state. They will need no light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light. Okay, great. So God, God is there in his presence. And they, speaking of the redeemed saints, those of us who are saved, whose name are written in the Lamb's book of life, who have accepted Christ's work on the cross to forgiveness of our sins, to restore us to relationship with God, we're saved. Here's what we are. They will reign for a four-year term. No, you and I reign forever, not just forever, but forever and ever. <laughs> There's no end. This isn't a, a, a limited spectrum thing. You, <coughs> let's personalize this, you will sit on the throne and reign over not just this creation that has been tainted by sin, but the eternal creation, free from sin. What kind of person ought you be to have that type of position? What is God's main desire for you? Is that you would be the type of person that has the character, that has the virtue, that has the quality of Christ-likeness, that you can reign with Christ in the eternal kingdom. So back to Mark chapter 10. This puts a little bit into perspective now. The man asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? In other words, what do I have to do to get a seat, to be able to sit on the throne with you, to be able to reign with you, to have that position and be engaged in your eternal kingdom? What do I got to do? Just give me the steps. I'll, I'll go out and petition and get the votes. We just voted yesterday, many of us, hopefully. Uh, and... A lot of people busted the streets and did a lot of work to get their names on the ballots and to get people to vote for Is that what I got to do is get enough favor? <coughs> what do I have to do to be there? Jesus says, well, do all these things because I've done all those things. And then Jesus, verse 21, looked at him, loved him, and said to him, look at those three things that you... Jesus looked at him, first of all. It, it, it seems insignificant. It seems like something we, could, we just read. Of course he looked at him. He's talking to the man. <laughs> but no, he looked at him. He, he fixed his attention on him, and he saw the need of this man. And, and, and he gave him his attention, his gaze. And, and, and he looked into the man's eyes. He, he looked beyond the outer appearance. He looked beyond the riches. He looked beyond the wealth. He looked beyond that even 
appearance of humility. He looked beyond the performance and he saw something. And he looked at him in that way and he loved him. What had this man done that deserved Jesus' love? The, the man hadn't served Jesus and had, had very little to give to Jesus that Jesus needed, but Jesus loved him with a wholehearted love. It wasn't, he didn't love the fact that this guy had money that could now fund his mission. He didn't look at this guy and say, this guy's got power and prestige and I can use his voice now to get my message out. He didn't look at the man as a means to an end. He looked at the man as the end himself. And he loved him. And he says, my goal now is to show you what you need to have eternal life. What do you need to have a place there that you can sit at that seat and be a part of that kingdom? Let me tell you. He loved him, and then he says to him, he instructs him, he gives him this information. He says, you lack one thing. In other words, you're doing really good outwardly. You've got it together, you're serving, you're going for it, you're passionate. You've got all of that stuff, but you've stopped there. And you lack one thing. He says, go, sell all that you have, and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. So what he says is, take everything that you have been identified with. Because notice how he's introduced there. He's called that rich young man. He's called a rich young ruler. He's, He's known by his wealth. Take that identity that's rooted in the earthly things and get rid of it. Abandon yourself. Abandon your efforts. Abandon your goodness. Abandon your work. Abandon your checklist that you think gets you into the kingdom. (laughs) Get rid of it. Now, I'm not calling all of us to go and empty out our bank accounts tonight. It's not so much of, it wasn't about the money. The money wasn't the problem. It was the man's heart that was the problem. Because the man was so fixed on performance and doing and acting and, and, and earning and all of these sort of things. It was all the set of rules. It was all what he felt needed to be done. And he says, you lack one thing. Die to yourself. Die to yourself. Stop building your kingdom. Stop building your identity. Stop worrying about what everybody else thinks about you and what you look like. (laughs) How many of us, when we were worshiping here tonight, sung a little bit softer than we really wanted to, maybe? Maybe a song came on and it was really ministering to you and, you know, you start you know, beating your head a little bit, maybe dare to lift in a hand or something. You start thinking, God, what about the guy next to me? What's he thinking? <laughs> People behind me might think I'm a little bit weird. And we start worrying about how we look. Let me give you a little insight in worship. Nobody's looking at you. <laughs> I learned that a while ago. Nobody cares what I'm doing during worship. <laughs> because they're all engaged in worship themselves, or they're worried about what everybody else is thinking about them. <laughs> they're not as worried about me. <laughs> When I go out in society, I'm worried about what I look like, how I dress, what I wear, how I present. All of these things, I'm so focused on me. And I'm worried about what people think of me. 
And am I going to be taken care of? And am I going to achieve? And am I going to receive? And do I get this thing? Notice that the very, <coughs> the next thing in verse 35 that goes into this. You have James and John asking to sit at the right hand. Can we be exalted above everybody else, Jesus? We're really the best, aren't we? <laughs> Don't we do that in Christianity? <laughs> I'm kind of a better Christian than that guy over there. <laughs> I sang louder. <laughs> uh, I serve more. And we start comparing ourselves. What kind of Christian am I compared to the next guy down the seat? We're guilty of all the things that this guy does. Again, let's get personal. We're all guilty. We all do this. We, we, we start to do all of these things, and we miss what it's about. So here's the answer. Go and sell all you have. Die to self. Die to everything that is your identity that this world has built up, that, that has made you who you are, that's given you your Die to all of that and come follow me. Follow me. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean to follow Jesus? Aren't we following Jesus when we're doing all this stuff? Didn't Jesus say, if you love me, keep my commandments? Well, notice the first half of that, if you love me. That love is an attitude of the heart. <laughs> if you genuinely have this relationship with me that we're engaged in, now your life is going to demonstrate that. The activity follows the heart. What this man was missing was the heart, the character, the development of the internal man, the soul, if you will, the spirit, whatever we want to call that, the inner man. He was missing that. And so Jesus says, what you need to do is set aside your worldly agenda. It doesn't mean quit your job. It means go to your job with a new purpose. Follow Christ into your job. <laughs> Follow Christ's direction for what a worker should be in your job. How should you work in a way that glorifies and honors the Lord and is a testimony to his greatness? What kind of worker should you be? You should be the kind of worker they don't want to get rid of. When your coworker watches you, they should say, wow, that guy's working hard. They're giving their best. They've got a good attitude. There's a joy on their face. They're treating every other coworker with kindness. They're helping rather than confronting. They're trying to push everybody forward and bring everybody up rather than hold others down. When you go home, Follow Christ into your home. How many times do we leave Christ at the front door because we're tired? We've had a long day, walk home. Kids are grumpy. Wife's tired. Food's not ready yet. House is dirty. Don't they know I've worked hard all day? Don't they know that they could be more busy about the kingdom businesses like I was? <laughs> Hope I'm not the only one here. <laughs> but but we, we go in with our kingdom and our agenda about how I'm being served and how I'm being comforted rather than we go in with a kingdom mindset of I'm going to rule and reign in Christ's, as Christ's representative in this place. How can I bring Christ into this? How can I follow Christ into these settings and let Christ lead the way? So what this man was doing was missing that aspect of it. Now, to, to finish, let me give you a little bit of insight in how this works. 
We're going to look at a couple last verses here. Let's look in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. I want to look at one word that tells us how we're to go about doing this. Because we hear this and we think, okay, that's great. But what does this look like? How does this happen in our lives? In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14. We'll start in verse 12 just for context. It says, And what I am doing I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission they work on the same terms as we do. In other words, Paul is saying, I'm going to keep preaching the gospel so that those false preachers are are undermined, that their message is undermined, and you can see the truth of what I'm preaching because I'm preaching Christ effectively. He says, For such, in verse 13, are false prophets, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. They're looking good. What do we see in the news today? We see pastor after pastor after pastor falling into sin, falling into uh, lifestyles that are anti-biblical. None of us are above that, but there's a character flaw there. there. There's something missing. Verse 14, and no wonder, Paul says, no wonder this is what they do, because look what's behind it. For even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Even, even Satan, your scripture, your, if you have a New King James, it might say transforms himself into an angel of light. And, and that's the word I want to, to get on tonight, is that word transform. There's a transformation that has to happen. Now, in this passage here, Satan transforms himself. And this word is used not only in a negative context like this, but it's used about us that our bodies, our earthly bodies, will be transformed and will be like Christ at one day. This is the word metaschematizo in the Greek. And that Greek word speaks about an outer transformation. We're changing the shape of a thing. We're changing the look of a thing. We're changing the appearance. Many of us are striving for the metaschematizo. I want to look right. I want to come to church and be the spiritual guy. I want to come to church and look like my Christian act is all together. I'm doing the right things. Uh, I'm the rich young ruler. I'm coming in there. and Lord, I've got it all together. I've done all of the things, Lord. What else? What else? What else you got for me? What do I got to do to secure this? And so that metaschematizo, this is what Satan does. He transforms himself into something that inherently he is not. He's not an angel of light. <laughs> but he makes himself look really good. You go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 with the fall. Satan made himself look really good. He sounded really good. He said all the right things. But it was all deceit. It was all lies. Now look with me at Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Okay, so die to yourself and present yourself to the Lord as that sacrifice. God, I'm yours. Everything I am, my identity, my walk, my job, my family, all of my existence, all of this quote-unquote kingdom of mine, it's yours. Present yourself to him, submit it, and surrender it to him. 
It's your reasonable service, he says. This is your logical, rational service. It's only right that we do this if we consider who God is. Back to Genesis 1, he created us. He created us to rule and reign, so we submit to his rule and reign. It's only logical that we should do this. <laughs> Notice that's a priestly job as well. So not only are you reigning as a leader in that sense, you're a priest representing the worship of the Lord. So this is your spiritual worship to God. And then verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, <clears throat> but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, this transformed is a different word. This is not a metaschematizo. This is not a transformation of our outward appearance. I've lived my Christian life for so long with an outward appearance of faith. Growing up, we went to church, I, I say, since I came home from the hospital. <laughs> but I went to church so much, I knew the scriptures well enough. I knew how to pray. I could pray some whoppers. <laughs> I knew how to look good. I knew the answers to the questions in Sunday school. I could quote verses. I knew to, I could handle the Bible. I could do all of that stuff. I dressed the part. I did all that stuff. But guess what? When I walked out the door, my friend lived about two blocks away. And I walked out the door, got off the church property, and within a block I lit up a cigarette, going to his house to party, to do whatever it is we were doing. <laughs> completely hypocritical. Completely unchristian-like. I wasn't doing the right things at all. <laughs> but I could play the part at church. And for years, I got away with it until people saw me. <laughs> we play church. <laughs> we play the outward metaschematizo. We, we fix the outward thinking that that's enough. And then we wonder why there's an empty hole inside. Because we've not been transformed. This word transformed here is the Greek word metamorpho. You guys think of a butterfly metamorphosis. The caterpillar crawls into the cocoon, spends that time, and comes out the beautiful butterfly. There's a change in its nature and its essence. We have been transformed, metamorphosed. We're, we're not the same. 2 Corinthians 5.17, you are a new creation. You are not the same you. So don't just paint up the outside, work on the inside. <laughs> work on the character. And how do we do that? How do we live this out? By the renewal of your mind. You're transformed by the renewal of your mind. What renews? The word of God. Because what we need to do is we need to see things differently. We, we, we need to walk into the situation and see it through God's lens. Walk into work, walk home, walk to whatever we're doing, go into that setting and say, okay, God, you're here with me now. How do I serve you in this setting? How do I bring glory and honor to your name? How do I rule and reign over this setting in a way that would honor you and glorify your kingdom and perhaps invite other people to be a part of that as well? How do I put you first and die to myself? And we need to change our thinking. We need to change that thinking because that thinking will now affect the way that we respond. When I'm angry, it's no longer okay for me to take the plate and throw it against the wall. To lash out in the way I used to. 
There's now a self-control that has to come, but I've first got to think about that self-control. And, and by the way, this is not something that you're going to will yourself to do. This is something the Spirit does in you. As the Spirit does that change, that Spirit can only make the change, and this is where we're going to tie it back into Mark 10, and I'll wrap it up here because my time is at zero, and it's been at zero. <laughs> I see the big red zero. <laughs> One thing you lack You've done all of those commandments, those six commandments. Notice what four commandments were not presented. The first four. You didn't have no other idols before the Lord. You didn't honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy. You didn't fail to take the, the Lord's name and not take the Lord's name in vain. You, you neglected the relational aspects with God. You pursued all of these other things in this temporal realm but you forgot to simply be in relationship with the Father. You forgot to sit at his feet and worship him, to bask in his glory, to invite him into every nook and cranny and say change and twist and tweak and, and bring me into situations that will adjust and tweak. Because what God is interested in is your holiness. I have a, a saying with my kids when they're upset with me. I tell them that God is interested in your holiness, not your happiness. <laughs> God will afflict you. God will bring things into your life. God will orchestrate things. God will work in you in such a way that it may be unpleasant. It may not be what you want. It may not be your agenda. It may not be pleasing. <laughs> but it's purposeful. Because God is forming in you a Christ-likeness because he knows that the goal is that one day you're going to sit and rule and reign with Christ. And if you're not like Christ, you will not be an effective ruler. <laughs> if you're not being conformed into his image daily, then you're not being prepared for eternal life to come. So how do I inherit eternal life? Become like Christ. Follow him. Walk in his footsteps. Imitate him. Do what he did. Allow him to do his work in you. Pray and, and, and ask him to change your heart and begin to immerse yourself in the word and change your mind about these things. Address situations differently with a perspective of what is going to bring honor and glory to the Lord, not comfort to me. <laughs> and, and as you do this, it's, you're learning new habits. You're, you're, you're learning a new way to approach things. You're, you're breaking the old ones and bringing in the new. And that takes time, doesn't it? Because we want to be good Christians right now, don't we? <laughs> I wish I could just lick that sin issue. Or I wish I could just do that and just be done. I, I went forward. Didn't that enough? <laughs> no, now you've got to walk it out day in and day out. You've got to take up your cross daily and follow him. Die to self daily and follow him. Take off the rags of unrighteousness and put on his cloak of righteousness daily. It's that constant choice to develop the new habits, to develop the new thought, to, to, to develop the new way of living in contrast to the worldly way that has been built up for so long. And guess what? You still have the world trying to keep you into its system. <laughs> so the process of sanctification is something that we often miss out on because we're so busy doing what we think God wants us to do. But as we're being sanctified, as we're being conformed into the image of Christ, everything we do, every step we take, everywhere we go, we're representing him. You're now ministering to others without even knowing it sometimes. 
You're now looking for ways to serve. You're serving in ways greater than if you were to just simply raise your hand and step up and sign up for a ministry. So that change of your internal heart, the transformation of our inner being is the one thing that this young man lacked. You lack this one thing because your identity is in your worldly possessions. It's in you and your kingdom. Put your identity in Christ's kingdom. You're going to rule and reign with him. So start preparing yourself. (laughs) Prepare yourself to be an effective ruler with Christ. And one day we'll sit on that throne with him and we'll rule over the new creation with God on the throne and we'll see the end of God's plan for this world and it will be glorious and we get to be a part of it. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, for the instruction that you give us. God, this walk isn't always easy. Lord, it's difficult at many times. We, we, we sometimes want to turn around. We, we just want the easy steps out sometimes. We just want the formula. But it's not about doing all of these things. It's about being a certain type of person. It's being a Christ-like image bearer of God. And I pray, Lord, that you would adjust our focus each day, that we would desire more and more to be like you, to follow you in every step of our life, not to charge out ahead of you, not to pretend as if you're not there, but to place you front and center in everything that we do. And Lord, may your Holy Spirit work in us as we give you place, as we give you time, and as we submit all of our life to you, that you would weed out those things that don't belong, you would tear up those areas that we've built that are mere shadows of what you want to do. The glory to your name and to your kingdom that you want to bring through our lives. The, The holes in our life that you want to fulfill with your presence rather than our activity. And Lord, may our pursuit of you, may our love for you, our desire for you, our fellowship with you be richer and more tantalizing than the call of this world than anything else around us, but may you be so amazing to us that we just want you in everything. Lord, help us to die to self, to give it all to you, Lord. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.